Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to this week's Speak Up conversation. I'm Mary Woodward, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Justice, and I'm speaking today on the land of the Gurungai people. I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters across Australia and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. Now, there are five Australian states and territories currently operating intermediary schemes. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by intermediaries from the three jurisdictions that have introduced them most recently. We have Sarah Coco from the ACT. Hi, Mary and listeners. I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. Thanks, Sarah. We have Sally Clary from Queensland. Hi, Mary. I'm speaking to you from Turrbal country. And we have Moira McKenna from Tasmania. Hello, Mary. I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Tomagina people. Hello, everyone. I wonder if we could start by just getting a quick summary of what an intermediary actually is. I I might go to you, Sarah, for this one. Yes, absolutely, Mary. Well, I guess the most simple way I can explain what an intermediary is, is that we are impartial communication advisors. We provide recommendations to stakeholders like police and courts about how best possible communication can be facilitated during evidence gathering processes, such as police interviews or questioning at court with people who have communication difficulties. And the way that we do that is by engaging with witnesses to conduct an assessment of their communication. And then based on the outcome of that assessment, the intermediary will make tailored recommendations very specific to that witness about how people around them can best communicate with them. Um, But not only do we provide uh, recommendations about a witness's communication prior to processes commencing, such as police interview or questioning at court, uh, but we also provide strategies during these processes. So that means the intermediary is present during these processes and will provide advice to stakeholders if any miscommunication arises. Um, I suppose it's important to acknowledge uh, there are some differences between intermediary programs and schemes in different Australian jurisdictions. Uh, for instance, with um, in respect to what classify, is classified as a communication difficulty and who is eligible to access an intermediary. But ultimately, across the jurisdictions, intermediaries are impartial. So we're not invested in case outcomes, but we are very committed to assisting communication of people with communication difficulties so they can most effectively participate in the justice system. Fantastic. Thank you. So so there are differences in how the schemes operate in different jurisdictions, but the overarching principles of the role um, sound like they're the same. That's right. Yes. Brilliant. I'm I'm wondering what what drew people to the role. Moira, I understand you're relatively new to this role, so maybe I'll start with you. Um, I am quite new. I um, was inducted into the Tasmanian panel of witness intermediaries last August, um, and that came about, I guess, over sort of a, a longer period of time. I'd become aware of the role of speech pathologists within the justice system, you know, across the different um, sort of fields of the justice system. And I think when I graduated nearly 20 years ago, I really didn't, um, I didn't really recognise 
that area of practice. And I, I think it's something really that's existed, been... existed as an area yeah, of practice about I, 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, perhaps, yeah, I think that's exactly right, that that um, recognition has not just been uh, within me, but that's how the... Um, how the system has has moved over mm. that 20 years. Yes. Um, so I kind of had this idea in the back of my mind that it, it was something that I was interested in working towards within my career. And then I was having coffee with a former manager one day and, and she was talking about the pilot witness intermediary scheme here in Tasmania. And she was aware that the panel was looking for more members and she thought that I might be a good fit for that. And then the more she talked about the scheme, the more I felt like um, it was an area of practice that I would really love to move into because I guess like like all speech pathologists, I have this real passion for helping people to communicate and, and to make sure that whatever barriers there are for them communicating well, that, that those barriers are understood and that the right support is in place at the right time for those people to be able to participate fully. Um, and I was really excited that that my professional skills um, could be placed so well into a system that, that I hadn't ever worked in before. Hmm. You've mentioned there around um, about how, how it sort of fitted with speech pathology and mm. the majority of intermediaries certainly are speech pathologists um, and that seems to be the case in in every jurisdiction including um, internationally and I, you know that makes sense given the role is focused on assessing and supporting communication as, as Sarah mentioned earlier I suppose it might be helpful then to listeners to clarify how the role of an intermediary differs from that of a speech pathologist in in, in other areas of practice. So I'll, I might throw that to you again, Moira, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been such a huge area of learning for me because, because like I said, my professional skill set is incredibly well matched to that of being a witness intermediary. But in fact, the roles are, are much more different um, than I envisaged um, 12 months ago. Mm. Um, so as a speech pathologist, of course, I'll assess, diagnose, I'll provide support, therapy, knowledge to enable a person to communicate. And I'm often an advocate for my clients and I take a big role in supporting them across the environments in which they're in. Um, but as Sarah was saying, a witness intermediary is an impartial officer of the court or for the police. Um, and so our job um, as a witness intermediary is to enable vulnerable witnesses to understand and to be understood when they're talking with the police or when they're within the court. Um, and so, of course, we're not a support person for the witness. We're there to assist police in the court. And so those professional skills, you know, my ability to build rapport with someone, my ability to um, recognise how they are best able to communicate, what information they're able to understand and what modality that information is presented in, their ability to emotionally regulate um, within different environments to enable their communication. You know, all of those professional skills are used um, as a witness intermediary, but to do a really different job. 
Mm. Um, and I guess the, you know, in both of those roles, you know, I might write a long report um, or create a communication resource. Um, but I guess the big difference is that when I'm a witness intermediary, I'm really focusing on that only that one question, that that idea of how can the court ensure that, that this person understands the information that they're being provided with in this setting and how can the court ensure that this person can be understood. Um, yeah, so it's very specific to that context as opposed yeah. to speech pathology where we might be wanting to, to you know, enable someone across a variety of contexts in, and, and kind of have make therapeutic gains, for example. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, having said that the majority um, tend to be speech pathologists, intermediaries can, as far as I'm aware, again, in all jurisdictions, also be from other professional backgrounds, um, particularly allied health, so such as psychologists, social workers, or occupational therapists. Um, I'd be interested to hear whether whether you think that the professional background makes any difference to how you perform the role of an intermediary. Now, Sally, I know you're a social worker by background, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, I do. Thanks, Mary. Um, at least here in Queensland, we do have um, a few more speech pathologists compared to the other professional backgrounds, but we do actually have um, a range of all the professional backgrounds, those, those four that you just mentioned, so speech, um, social work, psych and OT. Um, and I think involving people from all those backgrounds really does provide a richness um, to the role and really unique experiences because just as um, Moira was speaking to, um, when you work as an intermediary, you're no longer working from that clinical background that we've all come from. We all have to make the shift of whether it be from speech pathology to intermediary or social worker to intermediary, we all have to make a shift. And those uh, clinical skills that um, Moira was talking to as well, like the, abil the ability to um, develop rapport and emotionally regulate, and, uh, you know, acknowledge different communication needs and make recommendations regarding those. Like those are skills that that are taught in social work as well and that, you know, I've been using for many years. So um, we definitely do have, uh, you know, the, the skills to, to be able to um, participate as an intermediary. But, yeah, I've got to be completely frank. I have learned so much about language since coming into the role and my um, speech pathology, speech pathologist, sorry, colleagues have been um, very generous in their, in their time in, in getting into the nitty-gritty of language um, with me so I can um, better unpack and, and make recommendations in regards to, to questioning. Um, but I think I've provided as well a really interesting touchstone for them uh, in sort of when I go through when we share each other's reports, I may go through uh, a court report that one of my speech pathologist colleagues have written and uh, identify the areas where they've started to slip back into the speech pathologist role and the report is becoming quite clinical. And I sort of have to put up my hand and be like, 
I've stopped understanding what you're saying. And, um, you know, even as a, another allied health colleague, I was like, you've started to like use particular phrases or give recommendations that the lay reader being a police officer or member of the court is probably unlikely to understand Um, or just in general you've gone into too much detail you've started to step into that area of diagnosing when that's not what we're here for Um, we're here to give advice for this really really specific and very very foreign environment whether that be um, a police interview or the court environment so um, I think particularly from a social work background, um, what I like to think I offer to my team is that ability that we're taught and ingrained into us as social workers to always be thinking systemically. We're always thinking from the macro level. And so um, rather than just breaking it down into the language and communication going back and forth, I'm always thinking about everything else happening in that room as well. And maybe going back to legislation and seeing what um, abilities we have as intermediaries to be pushing the boundaries, making different recommendations that still sit within legislation um, but maybe haven't been considered before. So recommendations maybe that um, inform things outside of that direct questioning environment. Maybe we're giving more recommendations about exactly what happens in like pre-trial conferences or what happens in... Um, yeah, the, the greater context of the environment of questioning rather than just the questions that are being used themselves. So, um, Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> sounds like even, even though you're all operating independently in a particular kind of legal matter, you're, you're still kind of working together and collaborating as a team. So different different people from different professional backgrounds, but even with, let's face it, even within the same professional background, no two speech pathologists are gonna come with the same skills and experience. And and there's there's bound to be a lot of strength in in sharing that. Exactly, and I think that's um, something that here in Queensland we've really tried to to make use of. Um, Obviously, everything to do with the case will stay completely confidential, Um, but, yeah, bouncing off each other as colleagues and, and forming a community of practice as, as much as possible um, because this is such um, a profession in its infancy Absolutely. in Australia. Um, and the more that we can learn from each other, even, you know, across state boundaries, I'd love to, yeah, continue sharing knowledge and, and learning from each other as much as we can. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, just thinking about the kind of, I guess, the the day-to-day life and the logistics of it all of the jurisdictions in australia that have intermediary schemes have a panel of self-employed intermediaries so um who are contacted when a referral is received but some some of the jurisdictions also employ in-house intermediaries um sarah you've been an in-house intermediary since the act intermediary program commenced so maybe you could explain a bit about that role? Sure. Uh, Well, in the ACT, uh, the intermediary program offers 24 hour a day, seven days a week uh, service provision. Um, So I guess I would start by saying the in-house and panel intermediaries are accredited in the same way and they undergo the same training. But some of the main differences between the roles are that in-house intermediaries are employees of the ACT Human Rights Commission 
So as an intermediary, I um, have the fortune of having um, full-time work as an intermediary, and that is my only job. Um, and I also get to sit uh, every day in the office and learn from other in-house intermediaries, um, which is my good fortune, as I said. Um, in-house intermediaries take on the majority of the referrals within the ACT um, of various types. So working with police, courts, and even in lawyer sessions, I might uh, touch on that briefly in a moment. Um, so we tend to most of the referrals within business hours. Um, however, we sometimes tend to um, referrals outside of business hours where needed and if it's appropriate and we are a good match um, for the witnesses' communication needs outside of hours. Um, our panel intermediaries in the ACT uh, often have other employment or might work in private practice outside of their intermediary role and they're undertaking uh, mainly police referrals which fall outside of business hours. So at this stage, panel intermediaries um, are not attending court or lawyer referrals in the ACT. I think, I think that interesting. Um, other interesting aspects of the in-house intermediary role are that my fellow senior intermediary and I, assisted by our other in-house colleagues, are responsible for developing and delivering intermediary accreditation training. Uh, we also arrange and or deliver Sort of professional development sessions each month um, and uh, senior intermediaries also deliver ongoing mentoring and supervision of other intermediaries. So um, as an in-house intermediary, I've also had the opportunity to regularly engage with stakeholders, uh, police, lawyers, courts, legal aid, DPP, advocacy services and the like uh, to deliver information sessions about the intermediary program and training about communication with vulnerable witnesses. Um, and we also contribute to the development of policies, procedures, projects within the ACT intermediary program, which has been a really interesting aspect of the role. Um, I mentioned before that ACT in-house intermediaries can attend lawyer sessions. So that's a really discreet body of work, um, but it allows lawyers to utilise intermediaries to ensure their clients are able to understand legal ad advice or options and ensure that their clients can provide clear instructions uh, to them. Um, they don't form the biggest chunk of our referral base in the ACT, but they've yielded some really terrific results in terms of facilitating the best possible communication between lawyers and clients. Yeah, wonderful. And as you say, it would be very difficult to, to have the capacity to um, and availability and flexibility to, to be able to do all of those things if you just have panel intermediaries um, who are also juggling potentially other employment or other um, or other work? That's absolutely right. Sally, very true. I'm, I'm just I'm conscious of the fact that you're you're also a panel intermediary in sorry a, an, an employed in house intermediary in Queensland. Um, hmm. Is Sarah's description so sort of similar to how it operates in Queensland? Uh, fairly similar, yeah. Um, definitely, sort of the breadth of the role um, that. Sarah explained sounds really similar. I think uh, one piece that that we partake in as well that she didn't mention, I'm not sure if it happens in, in the ACT, but um, the in-house intermediaries here in Queensland, we have a quality assurance process um, for all the reports that our intermediaries put together. Um, and so the in-house um, intermediaries will sort of QA the reports before they're sent back to stakeholders. Um, so there's just sort of that second eye um, over reports. And definitely the, the author of the report is the 
author, absolutely. And so any comments or suggestions we make, it goes back to the author to determine whether he or she acts on those. Um, but it's just, yeah, as we um, all learn and develop as intermediaries, just to, to support that learning, that's something we do as well. Um, I think the one main difference that I, um, I heard from, from Sarah was that at least here in Queensland, um, there is no way that our in-house could take all of the court matters. Um, the majority of our referrals come from court rather than police here. Um, in Queensland, the intermediary service has only been running for two years. We're still in the pilot phase of our program and that's sort of wrapping up. Actually, officially, it wraps up at the end of next week. Um, perhaps oh, the time has been released. <laughs> oh, God, no, it's not even the end of next week. It's the end of this week. Oh, jeez. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm madly in um, evaluation and data gathering mode at the moment. Um, so that's a big, a big part of this role here as well while we've been in, in the pilot phase is, is, yeah, reporting back to government about how we're doing. Um, but yes, most of our referrals come from um, court rather than police. And so we do have uh, lots of, of panel members taking that work as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Moira, you're a panel intermediary in um, Tasmania, aren't you? Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. So I work as a panel intermediary and um, that means that I uh, I do have another job um, as my as my main job. I work for the Tasmanian Health Service and the Tasmanian Health Service Service and the Department of Justice um, have a memorandum memorandum of understanding um, that um, anyone who upskills to become a member of the witness intermediary panel can be supported to do that work um, both within work hours where clinically possible um, or in um, out of work hours and, and be reimbursed as such. Um, and so as a panel intermediary, um, I am blissfully unaware of an awful lot of work that the um, that the in-house intermediary team are doing, and I will just get a text message or an email asking me if I'm available for police interviews or court assessments um, as required. So, of course, for police interviews, there's often not much notice. We might you might be requested to attend that same day. You know. Um, going hit, sort of heading there straight away um, or within the next few days, whereas the court assessment uh, requests will often give you a few weeks' notice um, to do that. And then I either accept that referral or advise them that I'm, I'm not available to do that. And so uh, within, um, you know, I just look at what my availability is, you know, within work hours and within work hours and and either say yes or no. So for me, it's extremely flexible. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm just um, able to accept the referrals that I can accept. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and not, and then of course, it does mean that I do, so once I've done a court assessment and, and need to write that court assessment, report, it does mean that that tends to be pushed to out of work hours. Um, I don't do any face-to-face -face work within my normal work hours. Um, but I think, Sarah, you were saying that it's a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week service. Um, and Sally, as you were saying, 
the same the same goes in Tasmania that any court assessment report that I write um, gets sent to the in-house intermediaries to review and make suggestions. Um, and so the fact that that service is also out of hours has been um, incredibly beneficial. It's made that work quite easy to do. That's brilliant. Moira, um, I understand that a lot of the intermediary referrals that you receive are for regional areas of Tasmania. Um, does that present any different challenges or benefits as opposed to working in, for example, a capital city? I think so. Of course, I, I don't work in a capital city, so I, I, I'm... Hard to compare. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to compare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but here on the gorgeous Tomagina lands that I speak from, I'm about five hours drive from where our in-house team sits in Hobart. Um, and there's a much smaller pool of um, panel intermediaries up in this region than there are in the more populous regions of Tasmania. The region that I live in um, covers some mountainous areas, so out to the west coast, um, and that road often, there's one road in and out, and that road can often be snowed over in winter, very occasionally in summer. Um, <laughs> and we also cover the offshore islands like King Island um, that would require a flight to access. Um, so it would make it really difficult for the in-house intermediaries to attend those um, referrals um, and it also means that the challenges that I have in attending those referrals require some really good communication um, for that team and for me to be able for them to understand what that referral would entail and and for me to explain sort of you know the logistical um, challenges. When I um, came into the role I was worried that there might be a higher instance of conflict of interest. So, you know, I think anyone who lives in a small community would maybe share this feeling. Mm. You know, you go to the supermarket and you You're take know the person. 20 minutes to do your shopping and another hour to say hello to <laughs> everyone who lives in the town that you know. And I thought that that problem may occur within this work, yeah, that, that, I, that I would know someone um, involved with the referral in some way. Um, I'm sure it's the case in all jurisdictions that before I accept a referral, the in-house team do a conflict of interest check. So they um, check uh, that I'm that there is no conflict of interest, that, that, that no one in that referral is previously known to me. Um, and in this year that I've been doing the work, it's in fact never been the case um, wow. that there has been a potential conflict. And and because every referral is checked, I, I've been able to sort of put that fear mm. aside. Um, I'm sure because... that's reassuring to, to anyone else who, who might be considering um, um, training to be an intermediary in the future and, and might have had those worries. That's, yeah, that's it was certainly something that I thought about quite a lot um but it, but in fact it hasn't been it ha hasn't ever come up mm. um i think some of the other differences about working in a regional area are that i often work with the same police officers um and i've felt so gratified to be able to learn off those police officers and i think they have felt the same about working with me because it's um, 
it's also a new scheme here in Tasmania. It's a couple of years um, old now. Um, that we do have this real sense of learning to d- together. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's so wonderful to attend a police interview and to see that officer using a strategy or a communication aid that we've previously developed without my prompting to do so in that instance. You know that that they're um, that they're incorporating that learning and mm. bringing it forwards with them. And I think being in a small area that that's been amplified somewhat and and that, you know, often when you attend a police interview, um, you may not have much notice and um, and you've got quite a brief window to to talk to the police officer prior to the interview to find out, you know, how you can best be useful to them. And so being able to develop those relationships and have that trust um, already established has been really rewarding. Yeah, it sounds it. That's fantastic. So we've touched on this a little bit sort of in, in some some of the other parts of the discussion, but what's it actually like on a day-to-day basis to be an intermediary, whether there's you know, any particular highlights, any challenges? Um, maybe we'll start off with Sarah, but obviously anyone can jump in as, as, they, <laughs> as they wish. Well, I think it's been alluded to that intermediaries are masters, master pivoters. Um, we have to be able to respond very quickly um, to urgent referrals and we have to be able to apply um, all of the skills and knowledge that we have um, to work with stakeholders and to work with the individual needs of a witness. And I think, I mean, obviously that's one of the best parts of the role that I enjoy. I also enjoy the diversity of it. So on any one given day, I might be attending referrals, delivering information sessions or training, contributing to developing policies and procedures, um, doing mentoring and supervision with other intermediaries. It's such an interesting role and one that is unlike any other that I've ever had. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things I, my mind often goes to um, is that we are impartial officers of the court and we need to be mindful of and balance perceptions of impartiality while still trying to make those recommendations which we feel as professionals whose job it is to assess the communication of a witness um, that will facilitate the best possible communication and be practically implemented by stakeholders such as police and courts. But I think that aside, one of the best parts of the role is over time, over the over the last three years, I've been able to see changes being made and embraced really to assist uh, people to meaningfully, meaningfully participate within a justice system that's really done things the same way for so long and to see the role of the intermediary and all of that. It's really exciting. Great, thank you. Absolutely. Anyone else have, have any, any highlights or challenges they want to add? Um. It's Sally here in Queensland, and I, I would completely agree with, with those highlights. It's being part of change in a justice system that has been static for so long um, is really exciting. And, and I find, similar to what Moira was saying, working with police particularly rewarding um, and going back to um, the same police officers and, and seeing them 
uh, use strategies that you've taught them previously. Like the dream is almost that we put ourselves out of a job to a yeah. certain extent, that that um, the knowledge that we can pass on can continue to be passed on um, to people in the justice system for years to come. Um, but I would say, at least in, in my opinion, the, the main challenge is, is that clinical shift that I spoke to earlier. Um, like I was interested in the job um, because of its um, integral nature to the justice system and, and being a part of change in this system as a social worker, that's, you know, um, hits me in all the right spots. Um, but having to take off that social work hat to not be an advocate um, is really different. It's it's working in a very different way um, that is equally as rewarding. It um, yeah is is just a shift that takes a bit of time. I would one hundred percent agree with that, Sally. That like this is Moira from Tasmania. That um that that mental shift of being a advocate for a for a person versus being an impartial officer of the court, that that mental shift um, is one that takes – I still find that I need to constantly concentrate on that, that I need to have that in the forefront of my mind while I'm working all of the time. And, and you know, and I think um, you've both touched on how the legal system has been fairly static and and that this role is sort of introducing change in um, in a really important way. And one of the things that I've loved about the job is being able to use, um, you know, I've been able to be creative um, in a new way in my work um, because you need to understand the justice system and then recognise how you can apply your skills in a way that continues to uphold the work that that system does. Um, And, you know, if you um, don't mind me giving an anecdote, Mary. No, of course. You know, I, I'd i never heard of um, the Brown versus Dunn rule before <laughs> moving into it. And we all laugh, yeah. <laughs> before moving into this work, so please interrupt me, Sarah and Sally, where I get this wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I understand the Brown versus Dunn rule to be that um, if a witness is giving evidence in court and a lawyer would like to... Um, present evidence that uh, challenges that, you know, if the lawyer is going to present a um, a different version of what might have occurred or evidence that sort of contra- uh, contradicts what the witness is saying, um, that while the lawyer is questioning that witness, that they must put that alternative case to that, to that witness. So practically, you know, what that you know, I, you know, I'd often seen legal shows on TV where you hear lawyers say things like, I put it to you that, or I would suggest that, and then they, you know, suggest a different version of events. And I never really understood why. I, I hadn't understood that Brown versus Dunn rule. But as a communication professional, you know, 
you recognise that that in doing so, you often hear this kind of lengthy preamble from a lawyer and then you hear them speaking in the negative. And as a speech pathologist, we always try and cut preambles and recognise that um, understanding negatives is a is a um, linguistic skill that some people may not have developed yet, um, particularly younger children. And so I've really loved the creativity in providing recommendations to lawyers about how they can um, continue to ensure that that Brown versus Dunn rule is followed while understanding and respecting the witnesses' um, language skills. Absolutely. And that kind of, yeah, that kind of creativity is a real um, interesting element for me. Just before we end, um, and obviously recognising the, the importance of, of confidentiality, are there any success stories that, that anyone would, would be able to share? It's Sarah here, Mary. I, I have a success story I'd like to share if there's time. Yeah. Um, it was regarding a um, witness in their mid-20s uh, who had a learning disability, autism, language delay, unclear speech and trauma. Um, the decision was made to conduct um, an assessment for the purposes of the witness um, being questioned at court um, over two separate dates, given the complexity of their communication needs. And I think that's a good um, a good spot to reflect on the fact that not every witness's communication is the same and sometimes um, intermediaries um, need to be creative in the way that they approach um, their assessment and um, in thinking about that individual need of the witness. Um, so this was a witness who presented as extremely shy um, and significant time was spent um, building rapport um, and in ensuring that the witness had understood the purpose of the assessment and the intermediary's role at court and the scope of that and the limitations. Um, so whilst the witness was able to verbally communicate to some degree, they also used Auslan, they also used physical demonstrations, gestures and sounds to supplement their verbal communication. Um as well as uh, a text-to-speech application, which they accessed through a tablet. So um, I was able to make a number of recommendations about the person's communication, which were implemented um, during the court engagement, uh, including the lawyers and the judicial officer meeting face-to-face -face with the witness prior to questioning. And I think that really um, appeared, from my perspective anyway, to assist the witness's emotional regulation uh, and allowed everybody to be confident the witness had understood everybody's role during the proceedings. Um, the witness was permitted to use a variety of communication methods, um, including verbal communication, signing, um, high-tech communication device, gestures, physical demonstrations and sounds to give the evidence. So not just limiting them to that oral, oral, um, traditional way of giving evidence, but allowing that person to communicate their best evidence in their way. Um, I was able to give guidance to lawyers and the judicial officer during proceedings about how to clarify the witness's speech, gestures or sounds if they weren't understood. Um, and other recommendations which were implemented were uh, about the kind of question forms and the information being delivered, uh, the pace of the delivery of information and avoiding com complex language and question forms. So the witness was at actually able to utilise 
um, a mix of those communication approaches in providing their ev- evidence. And the lawyers effectively utilised the strategies to clarify the evidence uh, where required as they went along. And I think it's a success story because stakeholders um, were actually concerned in the first instance um, uh, about the witnesses' engagement um, in proceedings. So um, I think that's a success story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. It's been really wonderful hearing from you all about um, you know, how, how it is to be an intermediary in in the particular states and territories that, that you're in. Um, hopefully other Australian jurisdictions will um, introduce intermediary schemes in the future and, and hopefully there'll be people listening uh, to today's episode who may have considered or may now be considering um, um, applying to be an intermediary in the future and can see how they might bring skills to the role and how the role might bring um, new opportunities for, for them and their, their future skill development. Um, I know most of the jurisdictions um, are, are always keen to hear from um, people who are potentially interested. Um, um, especially as demand starts increasing because you know people see how important and how effective the role of an intermediary can be so it'd be fantastic if if um if it's piqued the interest of people who may want to apply in the future sarah sally and moira thank you so much for speaking with me and for for sharing all the the information and insights that you have and thank you everyone for listening we will be back with another speak up conversation next week thank you so much thank you, mary, mary. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.